we're in um, we're in doctor's opinion tonight. Thank you, brother. And that is Roman numeral twenty five XXV. Unless you're in the third edition, I think you're two pages off, but that's a separate thing. Okay, here we go. The doctor's opinion. We of Alcoholics Anonymous, remember, multiple authors, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men And here's the important part of that sentence. Who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. That means not the dermatologist, right? That means physicians or medical people that have experience in the realm of alcoholism. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. There are multiple copies of the original letter, just a photocopy of it. You feel free to take that, but we're going to read the letter in the text. To whom it may concern, the date on this is 72738. 72738. I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. Who's I? Dr. Silkworth. So he has worked with, uh, he has been at Towns Hospital as medical director for nine years when he writes this letter. He's the medical director at Towns Hospital nine years. He's actually a neurologist, which is uh, the study of brain and nervous system. In late 1934, I attended a patient, Bill Wilson, who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, how many treatments did Bill get? Four. Tricky, isn't it? Yeah, whenever I ask you a question, it's a trick, so don't just go with the easy one. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. This is not the first time we're seeing this in the text. We saw it in the forward to the first edition. What have we recovered from? Seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I personally, and you can find the proof of that looking in the forward of the first edition, right? I personally know scores. A score is 20, so it's plural. It's at least 40. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type who, with whom other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. 
Who the hell knows what epoch means? I didn't know, so I looked it up. And I always take my definition from this dictionary only because the, the definitions are geared towards 1939 usage, right? So epoch is a period of time made special by someone or something. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves, not the stock market, not where to get your car repaired, about their own experience. Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, MD. So I'd just like to show you, this is a picture of our kind little doctor, Dr. Silkworth. If you can't see it, if it's, you know, kind of crappy, but you come up and see it later on. But that's Dr. Silkworth. And again, he was the medical director at Towns Hospital. This is the front door of Towns Hospital, 292 and eventually 293 also, Central Park West. This is an upmarket detox facility, right? And uh, you saw the letter there, but there's the letter, right? You can come and take a copy of it. And uh, we'll continue. The physician who at our request gave us this letter. So now it's back to the big book authors uh, uh, speaking. Have been, has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms that we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. This is cutting-edge stuff in 39. Almost everybody believed it was a mental issue. That if you would just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can get your handle on this thing and stop the shenanigans. So this is cutting-edge stuff. So this is where Dr. Silkworth is, is, is uh, Bill is alluding to Dr. Silkworth's uh, theory that this is a disease. This is a, an allergy, mental and physical. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent. In fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. But we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers... We can say that his explanation makes good sense. There's a little change uh, that was done in the first 164. What did it used to say before ex-problem drinkers? This, who has that first edition? I saw somebody was using a first edition last week. Uh, it used to say ex-alcoholic, but that implies cure. So they changed it to ex-problem drinker. So if you're looking for a change in the first 164, there's one. I'll read that again. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Though we work out our solution on, a, on the spiritual, that would be prayer and meditation, as well as the altruistic, 
That's the service part of our solution, right? As well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. So you see what the big book authors are saying there. Although this is a spiritual solution, we are completely in a line with the medical necessities of somebody, i.e. going to a detox. What's the only drug that you can detox from and die? Alcohol. You can detox yourself on heroin. You can detox yourself on crack. Now, you may have seizures. You may have manifestations that are not good, but the fatality rate is almost zero. Booze, pretty high. So, who knows the name of the first person that did not go to a hospital? There was a huge debate. One guy came in and did not have the physical symptoms as strongly as these low-bottom drunks. I'll tell you, it's Warren C. in spring of 39. Spring of 39. First guy to not go to a hospital, not go to detox, caused the big rigmarole. Can't, it's impossible. He can't do that. He's not, he's not a low-bottom drunk. He'll never get sober. He's not, really a, he does, he's not really an alcoholic. That caused the big debate. Warren C. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So that's all big book authors. Back to Dr. Silkworth. The doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years' experience as medical director, and again, it's Towns Hospital, it's nine years, of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was, therefore, a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology, this means some sort of brain therapy, some sort of working on the guy's brain, was of urgent importance to alcoholics. But its application, in other words, how to elicit it, how to get the result, presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. And I think that term powers of good could be synonymous with powers of the spirit. Things you can't see. It's not tangible. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book, Bill Wilson, came under our care in this hospital. And while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. So who's we? First, Dr. Silkworth, that's the voice who's speaking, and it's also the owner of the detox, Charlie Towns. Charlie Towns and Dr. Silkworth agreed that Bill could ultimately talk to patients. Here's a nice classic picture of Bill. And when we do the history presentation, we got a, a bunch of pictures that are not typically seen of Bill. Something to look forward to. 
The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive, and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power, capital P, talking about God now, right? And still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average drinker. Notice the word never. And what's the problem with the phenomenon of craving? What have we found out that that really means now? It's a metabolism issue. It's an acetone issue. We don't break down the booze past acetone. With the next step would be a simple carbohydrate. We jam up right there. So our body just keeps telling, oh, you need another one. You need another one. You need another one. No. So that's, that's really what we're talking about is a metabolism problem. Let's look at that first sentence there. It says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago. So this is being written in, in um, 39. This part of the, this uh, Silkworth's contribution is written in 39. He's basing it on a publication he sent into the medical journal, Medical Record, dated March 1737. And he goes into detail about just the things he's talking about here. It's, a, it's like five pages, so I only made a few copies. So if you take one and the person next to you asks for a copy, you have to make them a copy. Okay, so uh, alcoholism as a manifestation of allergy, written in 37. So that's what he's saying, so suggested a few years ago. He's alluding to this. The, uh, these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, this means all self-will. If I decide I'm not going to have Carvel anymore and I'm able to not have Carvel, that's my self-will. If I decide I can't have Carvel and I can't stop having Carvel, I'm beyond human aid. It's not a self-will thing anymore. It's gone. I, I've lost. It's a mental obsession. I am obsessed with that little whale. That car, I'm obsessed with it. Right? But if I can stop, it's self-will. It's the positive use of self-will. If I can't, then it's not self-will anymore. I've lost, I'm powerless over Carvel. Their reliance upon human, things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. This is our whole thing with unmanageability. Unmanageability isn't the DWI. It's the example of living an unmanageable life. What's an unmanageable life? One lived on self-will. We're powerless over everything. Are we powerless over Hurricane Sandy, losing our job, getting a divorce, getting sick, kid getting into the right school? We're powerless over all of it. We can do the next right thing, but we don't really control it. 
if we feel as though we can put our heads down and control everything, our life will be always unmanageable, even while not drinking. 20 years sober, you can be unmanageable. Restless, irritable, and discontented because it's a self-will life. That's the whole key with that step. I thought it was apropos where we were. (laughs) Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. I interpret that as depth meaning spiritual, rich. You can keep peeling the onion back and wait. It's progressive and it's fatal. The whole medical part of the thing is you're screwed, right? So there's the weight, the weightiness of it. The depth is the fact that it's a rich spiritual concept. In nearly all these cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. If any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up around them. So what's altruistic? Giving selfless, giving of oneself without an expectation of a return. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented. That's all mental stuff. Unless they can uh, again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again. So in other words, the mental obsession pushes them back to the drink. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do. And the phenomena of craving develops. The physical, the physical aspect, the, the uh, uh, phenomena of craving. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. So what's a psychic change? It's a complete transformation. It's doing a 180. It's a complete different way of looking at the world. It's a spiritual experience. It's in a spiritual awakening, right? I have no money in the checking account. My kid's flunking out of college. I'm going to lose my job. And the house is in foreclosure. One way of looking at it is not in a spiritual way, and one is looking at it after the spiritual uh, uh, transformation, the psychic change. 
one, we're all right with it. We just need to do the next right thing. It does not mean there's now money in my checking account. The bank is leaving me alone. Boss said everything's cool. And Harvard called. We're all good. It does not mean that. It's a perspective change. Circumstances are irrelevant. Very important. Very important. Um, and then we did the, uh, this is repeated over and over. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Crazy. That's crazy. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. Notice the circumstances didn't change. It's just his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary being that, that, being that required to follow a few simple rules. What are the rules? Right there. <laughs> Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it often is not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. So Silkworth is in the premier detox facility. He's at the top of his game. He was doing this stuff during World War One, right? What's his success rate? Two percent, his number. Two percent. Imagine going to work every day and putting your whole heart and soul in it and you're successful 2% of the time. I do not hold that th with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I have had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date. And then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They're not drinking to escape. It was something that was in their favor. They were going to hit a home run. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. Now, there he's using the word craving in the, in the physical sense and in the mental sense. We typically don't do that. There are many in situations which arise out of the phenomena of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight, meaning to go to their death. Supreme sacrifice, right? The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, 
number one. The psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. I've never found one guy that said that was me. Never found one guy. So number one is the psychopaths. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon for keeps. They are over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision, which we see in step three, right? There is the type of man who is, number two, unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. There is the type who always believes that, number three. After being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. Number four, there is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are types, this is number five and everybody thinks they're number five, Entirely normal in every respect, except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. Everybody's five. I I don't get that. (laughs) So all these and many others that he's not describing have one symptom in common. And I underline this twice. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be a manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. I don't care what Pax Prentice I don't care what the guy on Malibu uh, uh, Spa says that acupuncture is going to do for me. I don't care about that. We have, we, it has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. So what does that mean? No cure. No cure. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Once a pickle, never a cucumber again. You can't go backwards. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. This immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Why? Look at all of the businesses that were based upon curing this guy's problem. And the, the, the funny thing about it is if it's a moderate drinker or a heavy drinker, you may be successful. Bellevue, you may go through their program and hit a home run. You may be sober at the end, but you weren't a real alcoholic. Why do we know that? Because we define it. You're beyond human aid. We defined it. No one else can. So if you're able to stop and stay stopped on your own, you weren't an alcoholic. Very, very significant. (laughs) Much has been written pro and con. But among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. What? What was that? Was that? Yeah, nice. Doomed. Well, you know, this is the only disease that the worse you are, the higher success rate. Right? You come skipping down the steps. Right? Low success rate. You come hopeless, bottom, took my home, DWI, wife kicked me out, husband took took the checkbook, I got nothing. Success goes up. (laughs) 
What is the solution? It's kind of a little tease, right? Because he's not going to tell us. We're going to have to wait. You're going to have to come back. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought to me treated for chronic alcoholism. He had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. Ooh, that's good. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. So uh, this is being written in 39. This is uh, referring to Hank Parkhurst. He gets sober in 35. Hank Parkhurst was instrumental in pushing Bill to, uh, to finish the book. He came up with the works uh, publishing a scheme, the stock scheme. Um, he was a assistant uh, a sales manager at Sun Oil. Hard pushing, you know, get the job done kind of guy. He wrote the story Unbeliever in the big book. You will not read it in the fourth edition. You'll have to see Sarah afterwards. It's in here. <laughs> Why is it not in the big book? He went out and died drunk. He was on fire working to get the big book put together. As soon as he, the big book was done, he lost purpose. He forgot why he was here to bring it to the next alcoholic. So he died drunk. Hank Parkhurst. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient, the patient had made his own diagnosis, that sounds like us, and deciding, and deciding his situation hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn, determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party, and in desperate condition, brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment a waste of effort, unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. His alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology. And we doubted if even that would have any effect. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is a fine specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. So this is, of course, talking about uh, Fitz Mayo, our southern gentleman. His story is in the fourth edition. 
So we know he stayed sober. They just recently found out he had like one slip, which, uh, which came to light recently. But one small slip. Fitz Mayo started uh, AA uh, Washington, D.C., founded AA Washington, D.C., and uh, was also instrumental in the big book sounding a little bit more biblical than college than like a college textbook. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through, and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. William D. Silkworth, MD. I'm going to stop there tonight. All right, we're going to go to a show.